This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everybody, and welcome to If the Kids Are United. Um, I'm very, very excited to be joining you all today. I'm Rachel Herzing, the Executive Director of the Center for Political Education, and I'm thrilled to be here um, today with Tarsu. Um, I want to do just a couple things before I get started here. Um, I want to thank all of our interpreters and all of the captioners, and I want to thank all of you for sticking around and being with us today. Um, I also, just by way of describing my own self, I am um, a light-skinned Black woman. I am wearing a black and white sweatshirt, hooded sweatshirt that says Center for Political Education on it. I'm sitting in front of bunches of books, um, and I'm wearing green glasses. And hair-wise, I'm rocking the Afro puffs today. Um, so uh, we know that this is a challenging um, time. And whether it was challenging the politicization of the pandemic or attempting to oust Trump from office or through the mass uprisings for racial justice and against state violence, 2020 has been full of attention toward and activity against the far right's ascendancy. And while the right has been gaining steam around the world, our counterparts outside of the U.S. have also been offering us really amazing inspiration from the people's ouster of the Guaido regime in Venezuela, or as we heard about in the last session, the recent landslide victory of Mas against Agnes and her party in Bolivia, to what appears to be the largest general strike in history in India recently against the Modi agenda, 250 million people strong. And those are just some of the examples. Right? The question for the U.S. left, however, still seems to be how to move beyond just defending ourselves against the ravages of the white supremacist, misogynist, authoritarian programs of the right to being able to actually contest for power. And honestly, I can think of no one I would rather discuss this question with than Tarso Ramos. Tarso Luis Ramos is the executive director excuse me, of Political Research Associates, a social justice think tank studying the right in the United States. Tarso has been researching and challenging the U.S. right wing for more than 25 years. Before joining Political Research Associates, he served as the founding director of the Western State Center's Racial Justice Program. Tarso also recently served as an activist in residence at the Barnard Center the study of women and was a Rockwood Leadership Institute National Year-Long Fellow. So welcome, Tarso. Thank you so much for helping us think about these issues today. I'm going to start by um, going back in history, going back in time a little bit, because I think history is a great uh, container to help us understand how we think about the present and the future, too. So the title of this session, If the Kids Are United, comes from the, the Sham 69 song, which for someone of my age and political bent probably raises memories of rock against racism and the amazing multicultural, uh, cultural, I'm sorry, multiracial cultural organizing that happened in the late 1970s and the early 1980s in Britain in opposition to the rise of the National Front. And for any purists out there, uh, yes, I will acknowledge that Jimmy Percy is a fraught figure, but I think that this Sham 69 song stands. Um, so all of that being said, the reference makes me think of two things that I want to ask you after, Tarso. One, Trump invokes Ronald Reagan on a regular basis, and we're looking at an economic picture currently and in the upcoming period that will likely even exceed the economic devastation of the early 1980s um, when I was, you know, 
coming of age in, in politics. And what lessons for understanding fighting the right do you think are useful to draw from that period um, for today? And then the second question is, what is your sense of the role that cultural organizing can or should play in our movements today? Well, thank you, Rachel, for that very kind introduction. And it's um, it's delightful to be with all of you today as well. Boa tarde, buenos tardes, good afternoon or morning or evening, wherever you are in the world. My um, deep respect and appreciation to Center for Political Education and Haymarket Books for inviting me to be part of this dialogue with you uh, at an interesting um, moment, right, in, in U.S. and global history. And so... Yes, you bring me back. <laughs> I think we're more or less of the same generation, uh, Rachel. And thinking back to that period of time, um, you know, a few things pop for me. One is, um, as much as Trump invokes Ronald Reagan, and as much as Trump's authoritarian coalition includes, you know, the neoliberal um, wing of capital that that Reagan and Thatcher really unleashed upon the world. Um, he's also done far more for other sectors of the right wing than Reagan ever did. Reagan got the support famously of conservative white evangelicals who are newly politicized in the, in the previous decade and have become a tremendous political force in the United States, the most loyal voting bloc to reactionary and authoritarian politics, including white nationalist politics in the U.S. Reagan delivered very little for them. Trump has delivered an amazing amount, tremendous amount of power um, through the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but the federal bench, much else. Um, and so Trump has a lot, amassed a kind of permanent coalition that involves theocrats, Christian nationalists, involves neoliberal capital, and involves white nationalists um, together in an uneasy but but strong uh, alliance um, that we're seeing now even in Trump's defeat. And so I think when I think back to the Reagan-Thatcher period, I think about the kind of um, the seeds that were planted for the development of this kind of reactionary coalition in the U.S. and, and globally, for that matter. And I also think back to the the kind of multiracial organizing that was transformative as an entry point for radical political culture, a shift in the political imagination, um, the possibility in the context largely of a two-tone uh, framework, black-white framework, it has some of it, some limitations, but in a British definition of blackness it's, that's expansive, um, that was really critically important. And I think that um, thinking back on that period for all its problems, the U.S. has struggled to land on a similar kind of multiracial solidarity that is not only in organized opposition to the rising right, but that is really united in imagining and insisting on an alternative multiracial emancipatory feminist democratic possibility going forward. And so it's useful to think about what were the what were the things that allowed that kind of a coalition to come together? Where are we strong now? We've got some things going better than we had going then. And where we where were we maybe a little thinner in terms of our ability to imagine that level of joint action and solidarity culturally, socially, politically um, uh, on the US left. Do you want to say anything else about the role of cultural organizing or should we move it along? I guess I do. And, and um, you know, there are there are um, cultural organizing is not my lane. So I'm not I'm not going to. Um, so charlatan warning for some of the things I might say here. I guess what I want to say is a little less, Rachel, about cultural organizing and more about culture shift, um, because. In my, from what I've seen over the past few years, and certainly and very deeply over the past six months, this period that you mentioned coming in in your introduction, um, you know, from the COVID uh, quarantines, the the uh, black-led multiracial racial justice protests all across the country, and a variety of other kinds of organizing around that, um, we see a contestation for U.S. culture at a scale that left, and certainly a multiracial left, a black-led left, has not produced in this country for, I think, 50 years. And we have been losing so profoundly to the right's um, 
success in the culture wars and defining who the people are, who the we is and we the people, pardon the phrase, that very problematic phrase in the Constitution, but to define it in an increasingly exclusive and even expulsionary way. The right has done tremendous cultural work that has presaged their ability to, to, um, to leverage those gains into so- social organizing, into political organizing. And the left has really not had a mass answer for that, in my view, for decades. And so to see the kind of culture shift that's happening now, where not only are all kinds of people getting politicized, but this idea of multiracial solidarity and cross-class solidarity, this idea of shared fate, isn't like a hypothetical thing suddenly for scores more millions of people in the United States. It's something very intimately felt. I think that culture shift that's not consolidated, but that has begun is deep and profound and maybe the single most important element of political culture in the United States right now in terms of the possibility of an emancipatory future. And so I think this question of the relationship of culture to politics is one that the left especially needs to lean into right now. You know, I'm a Gramsci in the sense that I really do believe that culture shift is fundamental to political possibility. Um, The left has been weak there, um, not only in the sense, the formal sense of cultural workers, but in the sense of understanding the importance of capturing um, and and wedding a a political project to a cultural project. And so I think this moment is, however politically fraught it is, and it is very politically fraught, it is culturally very generative. And that's a scary but exciting uh, sort of counterweight. If we were to look at a, a, a balance of forces, left and right, it's a pretty scary equation. If we look at contestation for the culture, it's also scary, but it's, it's a little, it's more even. And so there's a lot more I think we should dig into on that one. I, th- I think that there's so much rich stuff in what you just offered us there. And so I thank you for that. And I am wondering if we can talk a little bit more. You started in um, on this a bit in the first response, but I wonder if you can help us think a little bit more in more detail about the right. One of the things that I always appreciate about talking to you is that you remind me that the right is not a monolith. And I think in terms of the balance of power that you were just talking about, understanding those places to kind of get in where there are vulnerabilities, where there are fissures, where there are contradictions, offers us really, really good options for increasing our power. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this period, but I'm thinking particularly like the past two to four years, what changes in the far right do you think are the most important for the left to understand if we're really um, committed to building left power? Thank you. That's a great question. And, um, uh, and, and, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on it, so I will try to I will try to organize them well for all of you. I guess maybe the way I'd like to start is to step back a second from the U.S. context. You mentioned some of the most exciting um, mass left organizing that's happening in some other places around the world, and part of what has precipitated and necessitated that organizing is that authoritarianism is on the march around the globe right now, right? So we are, in fact, all of us living through in in the the context of the third mass global march of authoritarianism since the start of the 20th century. The first gave us mid-century fascism. The second wave, often characterized by Um, military coups um, and um, military dictatorships backed either by the USSR or by the United States, that kind of bipolar moment. Um, And then the third wave is, or or march of authoritarianism is the one that we're experiencing now. And it's important to name that because um, the United States is such a parochial place for a center of empire. It's, It's peculiar how parochial it is. But, you know, Trump didn't make this stuff up, and Trump is both a reflection of and a force accelerator of some of these trends. 
But, you know, much of Trump's program, you know, the um, authoritarians borrow from each other. The techniques of power, the modality of power is borrowed from other places, right? So, you know, when when Trump is coming with this stuff around George Soros and all this anti-Semitic framing, he got it from Viktor Orban in Hungary and he's borrowing that stuff, right? And when, you know, Netanyahu... Um, is figuring out how to expel human rights workers so that um, global allies of the Palestinian struggle don't have, you know, can't operate within Israel-Palestine. He's borrowing that strategy and the defunding of, of uh, international NGOs. He's borrowing that stuff from Putin and from Modi. So these technologies, you know, get traded um, and, and adopted. And it's important to recognize this moment because it's not just a couple of election cycles. In a, in a period of this kind of march, we're probably in something like a generational struggle for democratic possibility. And when I say democratic possibility, I don't mean modern liberal democratic nation states. I mean, you know, are we going to have something like a transformational, emancipatory, multiracial, feminist, religiously plural democracy, which is to say, a democracy, right? Are we, is there actually a possibility for that sort of thing? So we're we're experiencing this global march of authoritarianism, and I would say every country, every national context, every regional context is different. So apologies for some generalizations, but any place, Rachel, we look where we're seeing, you know, the crisis of liberal democracy, the rise of nationalist parties, the rise of racist and theocratic and misogynist um, uh, parties and politicians, we can find at least three key ingredients, right? We find extreme economic inequality, usually the result of neoliberal economic policies, but sometimes other other operations, other strategies for achieving uh, uh, the vast transfer of wealth right, uh, upward to elites, um, creating real pain, real struggle, and um, the opportunity for um, interpreting that pain in ways that blame those most who most suffer in order to build power. So it ushers in the possibility of right-wing populist and nationalist movements. So the second, the second factor we have is the rise of religious, nationalist, and theocratic movements. And this is critical because these often provide the mass base for politics that neoliberalism can't provide. It's very hard to organize a party around, give rich people your money, right? That's not a, that's not a program. Um, but you but you bring in traditionalist gender norms, you bring in you know, a mass um, a capacity to do mass organizing through religion and culture, um, to back often neoliberal policies, but also then a cultural and an authoritarian agenda, which is required to impose a particular conservative reactionary religious vision. So whether this is Hindufa, Hindu nationalism, or fascism on the in the Indian South continent, or the evangelical right in my birth country of Brazil, or the United States, or whether it's a, uh, uh, the Orthodox church backing Putin, you have this characteristic. And then the third is you have the rise of racial and ethnic nationalism. And of course, in any place that conforms to the specific forms of racial and ethnic domination of the place. In the United States, we know the particular histories of that and so white supremacy and a particular notion, an idea of who the real people are, who the real population of the people of the United States that is rooted in genocide and, and chattel slavery continues to be a thing, although it's evolving. And so, um, so all of these things are present in the United States. And when I say that, authority, uh, that Trump put together an authoritarian coalition, he's weaving these strands together, right? And all of these strands require increasingly authoritarian social, cultural, political, and policing apparatus, there's no way to maintain the level of economic inequality without leaning into a more draconian set of policing relationships as a for instance. So you'll have neoliberal elites who actually are not down with Trump. They think that all this stuff is crazy. On the other hand, you know, they maybe are building their business models on the surveillance state and the carceral system because that's what's gonna keep their riches uh, safe in the context of this. So a different dystopia, perhaps, than the Christian nationalists who are really about, right, imposing some form of theocratic rule um, in the United States and globally. Many of them are actually not nationalists or internationalists in terms of the vision that, that they have. And they bring a particular form of misogyny and a notion of white Christian nationalism uh, to the project. And then, of course, you have a, a, an overlapping but an independent tradition of, of white nationalism in this country. And when I say white nationalism, I'm, I'm drawing a distinction between white nationalism as a social movement 
and white supremacy is a system, right? We've had a white supremacist system in this country for 400 years, um, but we have a white we have a white nationalist uh, social movement that wants to change the agenda of white white supremacy as the system is about, and this is part of this moment that we're experiencing, and it's part of a transition. Trumpism facilitated. If white supremacy as a system has been focused primarily, and again, excuse me, I'm generalizing, on exploitation, hyper-exploitation, right, of black and brown um, bodies in this country, and a kind of cultural domination and humiliation that makes possible the ongoing exploitation also of a white working class and, and, and poor population, White nationalism is less interested in the capitalist um, exploitative project of racial capitalism. Um, they're much more concerned about maintaining a large, permanent white superpopulation majority. I don't just mean electorate, I mean population majority. They see the shifting global demographics and particularly the changing racial demographics of the global North is an existential threat to their idea of whiteness and white culture. And so their top priority is to convert the project of the white supremacist nation state into the project of an ethno state. Right. And that requires a whole um, additional set of priorities. Right. It means there has to be racialized immigration controls so who can get into the country and so forth. There has to be racialized carceral carceral policy. Well, we have a lot of that already. There's plenty to build on there. There has to be a racialized set of policies around reproduction, who's encouraged to reproduce and who and who not. Um, so when we see atrocities like mass sterilization happening in ICE detention centers, we have to think beyond, you know, the the. Um, the bigotry and the violence of particular individuals in that system to what's the rationale of a system around racialized reproductive controls in a period like this one. And then, of course, the question of expulsion and elimination, right? So the Muslim ban, the ban on, um, on visas for refugees, kids in cages on the border, all of this comes directly out of a white nationalist policy infrastructure that was built by white nationalists in D.C. over the last 40 or so years that was drawn directly into the Trump administration. At least a dozen key personnel were drawn directly into senior positions in the Trump administration to implement this strategy. And so we have the beginnings of the official incorporation, um, not full consolidation, but official incorporation of this different project for white supremacy under Trumpism alongside uh, you know, neoliberalism and alongside rising uh, Christian uh, nationalism and, and theocracy. And one of the characteristics of authoritarianism is there's less of a focus on trying to resolve the tensions and contradictions. Typically, the unlike unlike a totalitarian country where there may just be a single party, I mean, the, the, the obvious examples are like Nazi Germany and Mussolini's, um, Mussolini's Italy, under authoritarianism, you have kind of bounded pluralism, right? Um, and the authoritarian leader hasn't consolidated so much power they can they can just do whatever they want. They have to they have to appeal to different power blocks, give them what they want. It results often in a in a um, a, a, a self contradictory style of communication. Um, that's not just Trump. That's actually the you're telling different parts of your power blocks the things that they want to hear, even if they don't actually add up in a coherent way. That's part of what the dynamic of Trumpism was about. Yes, he's also, you know, uh, compulsive, impulsive and all the things. But there's a logic to that, which is a, about a modality of building power. So I would say that one of the things that has really shifted from the time of Reagan to this time is that there is now both a crisis of legitimacy of the neoliberal project, including neoliberalism with like the sprinkling of you know human rights and like racial justice and whatnot on top, which is what you know, which is what the the Democratic Party is trying to bring back in response to Trump. It's what France brought back with Macron and it's failing there. This, this thinking that you can go back to a model um, that produced the crisis that opened the door to white nationalism in the first place. Um, and so we're at that moment where um, liberal elites have not figured out 
a new answer to the crisis that produced what they're also afraid of. Um, and so the ruling class in the United States, as elsewhere, is split. They, many of them really don't. Some of them do want, they're happy with Trump. Some of them really don't want Trump, but neither do they really want to give up on the neoliberal model, right? That they think that they can have neoliberal multiculturalism and somehow that will work is it, 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 a model. And so we're at a very difficult moment now where the right has, the far right has a path um, to continue building power, including to take back full power of the Congress and of the presidency, in part because liberalism, uh, you know, has nothing more to offer than the status quo ante, which can't work um, and produce help to produce crisis in the first place. So, sorry that was a, a little bit long, but you asked me a big question. I hope that got us at least part of the way towards where you wanted to take the conversation. Definitely. That was fantastic. And thank you for laying all of that out. I guess I want to go one, like maybe layer deeper into that and ask, you know, given all of that and given the kind of variety of moving pieces that there are that comprise the right, um, what are you identifying right now as some of the kind of greatest vulnerabilities or best pressure points for people on the left to be thinking about and trying to take advantage of right now? This is a great question. Um, the, the, uh, then what must we do question? So I think, I think one thing that has shifted is that fewer elites, fewer liberals even, really believe that it's possible to go back to status quo ante. But the muscle memory is strong. The muscle memory is strong. And so the, the move to pull resources out of field building work, movement building work, and to shift into, you know, into policy work in D.C., we saw this under Clinton, we saw this under Obama to disastrous effect, right? It's exactly when a, a Democrat is elected president, whatever their particular ideological or um, uh, or, or political posture might be, is when the right tends to regroup as a resistance movement. I mean, this is not unfamiliar. We saw this on the left. We saw, you know, there were, there are still a lot of deep divisions, but many of those were muted in in this period of where the priority became to deal with and expel Trump and prevent the consolidation of that coalition. So, but there is this muscle memory to think, oh, we can go back to this. And so, I think one of the key priorities is to recognize that what pulled this country in this election just back from the edge of the consolidation of authoritarianism were the mass social justice movements, many of them, a multiplicity of movements, and certainly the Black freedom struggle in its current expression, and that that's where the energy is. That's where the possibility is. At PRA, we often, when we think about the work we do around the um, understanding the U.S. right wing, we think in terms of block and build, right? We have to block the further consolidation of power, cultural, social, for economic and formal political power by the ruthless architects of domination, right? When I say the right, let's just, get, just to be really clear, right? The ruthless architects of domination. And we have to build. We have to build, right? Because we're not defending this because this is an emancipatory system. It's not an emancipatory system. So why would we defend it? We, we need to block and defend in order to have the space to continue to build real alternatives, a society that we would want to live in, right? And so that block and build move is really important in this moment. The, the defeat of Trump at the polls, albeit more narrowly than, you know, not a lot of comfort in the in the 70 million plus votes that, that Trump was able to muster, was a critically important block. It is to be celebrated. It was a critically important, we denied a second term to white nationalism, to overt Christian nationalism, to a particular form of, of um, economic oligarchy, although we'll have another form here. Um, that's re a really critically important, uh, a critically important victory. We were able to displace an authoritarian coalition before it had consolidated so much power that it couldn't be displaced, right? And that was not a foregone conclusion of what would happen in this election. But it was a block. It was not a build. What what was what was elected to DC? It will not be a vehicle, right? 
for transformational change. It cannot be a vehicle. It is it is a centrist government. And let's be real in global terms is a center right coalition. All it knows how to do is to move to the to center. All it knows into the right. All it knows how to do is to capitulate. And it will have very little capacity to govern because of the realities of the capture of the courts, the reality of the um, unlikely even Democratic Party control of the Senate. Let's see what happens in Georgia. If magic can strike again, praise to Stacey Abrams and all the grassroots workers there. Let's give them our support, our money, our phone calls, our time. Let's do that. Um, that's important. That's important. But it will. that project, in my view, will fail because it cannot answer the underlying contradictions that brought us to this moment. And so we have to, we have to yes, put pressure against its further move to the right. Um, and yes, we have to contest and see what we can get out of it. But it is a moment to really calibrate, right, the level of attention, uh, attention, investments, and so forth there, and really to think more about what's the through line, what's the build, right? How do we stick with with the leaders of the of the Black Freedom Movement in this moment? How do we stick with incredible multiracial organizing that's happening in in other uh, quarters? How, in the spirit, right, of late seventies and early eighties uh, Britain, how do we think about the need to organize a plurality of white folks in this country to understand that their freedom is bound up with achieving multiracial? feminist, religiously plural, emancipatory democracy, and, and in not, no other project um, can they have that. That is, critically, that is critically important work. And so I think this question of how do we really lean into the culture shifts that are already producing the possibility of um, local victories, of different ways of imagining participatory democracy that don't require you know, a DC kind of program in order to, um, uh, to implement. What are the policy shifts that can come out of um, divest, invest? Um, and a variety of other notions of feminist reconstruction of, of uh, urban and, and rural areas. I think there's a lot to work with, a lot of energy, and we gotta we gotta stick with that. It is it is a pattern in U.S. history that the Black freedom struggle is allowed to save liberal democracy from itself, from its worth excesses, to be the parachute but not the pilot, right? To lead to the moment and then thank you very much shut up now, go back to your place, right? And not to carry that momentum, that leadership forward. And that is the that is the pattern we have to break, that we have to rupture in this moment. And it's not a small thing or an easy thing to do. And I'll, I, will, I will pause on this note. You know, for me, optimism is rooted in a cold-eyed um, evaluation of the balance of power. Um, that leads to a strategy, a set of strategies and a strategic determination to press on and to build. Um, optimism is not the dreamy-eyed notion that, oh, we defeated Trump, and so now all kinds of things are suddenly possible in the country or, or, or in DC or other kinds of things. And so we have to be optimistic, but an optimism that is rooted in a very real calculus of how difficult a transitional moment this is. What so-called democracy has survived the transition in which the dominant racial, ethnic, or religious population saw itself becoming a numerical minority. It's just not what happens usually in this moment. And we don't have to look farther than Reconstruction and White Redemption to know it, to know it, to look at the, our own history in this place, in this colonial settler project, of what it means when you actually are dealing with multiracial democracy for the first time. We got, we got racial terror and a one party racial dictatorship, right? That governed the South and was able to determine national policy for 75 years. So this is a very difficult transition. We are attempting to build an actual multiracial, actual democracy in this transitional moment, there's not a good blueprint for that. That doesn't mean we won't do it. We will because we must. The alternative is unthinkable. But those are the stakes. Those are the stakes in this moment. And so being really clear that um, all kinds of forces are stacked against us, I think, helps us to think about where do we, in fact, have the most traction 
the most possibility. Who do we need in order to win that project and to actually govern a multiracial democracy? What would that look like? Who would we need in that project? Are we building those relationships now? If not, how do we think we will get to that place? So I think those are the kinds of questions we need to pose for ourselves in this moment. Again, block and build. Great block. Understand the limitations of that. Invest some of our resources there. Focus on the build. That's super helpful. And I appreciate um, you making this reference to reconstruction, because I think we're always very, you know, those of us who are invested in black liberation are always, I think, bracing for what the blowback will ever be sure. from making any gains toward toward our liberation. How deep and violent will the betrayal be in a moment? Exactly. Like this? Yeah. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the questions that that makes me think of is, um, you know, and, and we're about to get into a period where we will take questions from people who are listening in. If anybody has them, stick them in the chat. Um, but before we get into that, I guess I have one last thing on my mind in thinking about that reconstruction period and in thinking about kind of beyond the kind of coalitional politics in D.C., you know, to the point that you were making earlier about this most recent election and the, you know, the points that were made in the previous session, the one that preceded this, Trump is gone from office, even though he's kind of desperately clinging still to nothing at this point. Um, but we have to, I think, if we're going to be sober in our analysis, remind ourselves that there will be persistent impacts of Trumpism even after Trump leaves office. And I'm guessing um, that you probably have some thoughts about what some of those kind of most acute impacts might be, but also, you know, what does that mean for how we fight? So in a continuation of some of the stuff you were just talking about, what does, what specifically does the build look like in a period in which, um, you know, Trump might not have formal official power but Trumpism is still very, very deeply ingrained in this country. Yeah, I, I, I think you're so right about that, Rachel. Whether or not, whatever role Trump ends up playing, and he's playing a significant role right now, um, you know, the, the soft coup strategy, right, of trying to, you know, engineer a different slate of electors from Pennsylvania or Michigan or some other place, you know, that clearly is not going to prevail. On the other hand, Trump has managed to stave off any competitors in 2024. He's managed to organize a situation where, what is it, 18 or more secretaries of state petitioned? We've got, we've got, I think, nine of the 13 Confederate states plus another nine who secretaries of states have lined up with this, this absurdity of overturning the overturning the vote. Um, you know, that's we've got his proxy and Lindsey Graham talking about there's a civil war happening in, in Georgia. You know, the the so far, the authoritarian coalition that Trump helped to galvanize, it's got some wedges, it's got some fraying, there's some things happening, but it is holding. It is holding. And I would anticipate that we are entering a political moment where the right is organizing a kind of an umbrella, a broad umbrella politic that extends from at least the hundred, you know, members of Congress who backed Trump in this in this escapade. Um, so that let's call it the, the 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 authoritarian wing of the GOP, the explicitly you know right wing populist authoritarian Trumpist wing of the GOP, all the way through much of the Christian right into the paramilitaries like the Proud Boys who today are there in D.C. waving the German imperial flag. Right, which is what you wave in Germany when you're a Nazi, but because the swastika is banned, so let's just be clear what that flag represents. Um, all the way down through the kind of accelerationist boogaloo boys and these kinds of factions, they are. It, it seems to us that a they're trying to galvanize to gel a, a political project that will have militant expression in real life, but also as a political project that can carry some of that energy into recapturing of Congress and into a path back to the presidency in 2024. And they're not wrong to see that path. To me, this moment feels reminiscent of the early 90s after Clinton was elected center-right Democrat 
president from the South. We all know that story of, you know, um, uh, of, uh, of feigning, feigning populist left and then and then the, uh, reconciliating with the hard right of the Republican Party. In the first couple of years of uh, Clinton's first term, we got this mass militia movement, right, Cons- created mass energy on the ground. Um, you know, with conspiracy theories, the ones we hear today are QAnon, right? And soon it'll be more the anti-vax stuff and, and other pieces of this. Then it was the New World Order conspiracy, right? Um, UN troops amassing outside the U.S. border to invade any moment, these kinds of things. It seems crazy, but there was a mass following for, for these kind of these kind of politics. And then the energy was captured into a political project, the contract with America, Newt Gingrich, well, that nationalized these congressional elections and Republicans, right-wing Republicans, uh, seems like an oxymoron, but there was still more of that kind of contest in those days, captured the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years in a sort of landslide election that brought figures like Helen Chenoweth, who talked about black helicopters, new world order, order into the Congress. Reminds me again of 2008, when the response to Obama's election was in part the creation of some of the paramilitaries we're dealing with now. Right, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, um, they were created in response in that moment and then built into this wave of both a political project, which was the Tea Party Inc., right, the Koch brothers' money and all that, and then a, tea, a nationalist Tea Party, which made possible the electoral aspirations of Donald Trump, right, with birtherism and Ted Cruz and all, all of these folks, opened the door to this kind of authoritarian coalition that has emerged since. And again, was a wave election, right, that captured captured the Congress and so forth. I think we're entering into that kind of a political moment with tremendous turmoil on the ground on the right and a clear political project at the same time. And so this requires a level of tactical sophistication as we build our ability to sustain mobilization. Um, you know, uh, continuing that stream forward from the past six months and couple of years, it also requ- requires um, ongoing political engagement. And I do think that one of the things that's happened, and, and maybe we're getting close to time, so I'll, I'll, I'll make this point. I do think that there's been a maturation on the left, especially the racial justice left, over the last couple of years that has managed to hold both um, leaning into mass mobilizations and culture shift and street politics and developing the infrastructure for that, including comms and other kinds of infrastructures, a safety apparatus, which is still a little thin. It's a place we need to invest in more and figure out. And also a level of political entrism, right, in, in terms of formal politics that's wedded to that mass strategy and not entirely beholden just the Democratic Party. That's a hard thing to hold in the United States. The ability to do both of those things, right, to be competitive in response to our own communities around the electoral piece while we're building mass space, I think that those are lessons, those are muscles that we're beginning to build on the multiracial left that will serve us well coming into a period of multivalent challenge. And so we should lean into all of that. Thanks for that, Tarso. So there is um, a question here from the participants that um, maybe we'll close with. So um, I'm wondering if, uh, from this person, if you can speak to calls for healing and reconciliation that we're hearing right now. So we're hearing a lot of that, right? The country needs to heal. We need, there needs to be reconciliation after the you know, divisiveness of the Trump era. Um, and I guess the, the person who's asking this question is, is also asking, you know, given these calls, is your sense that that's a waste of time and energy right now? Well, look, oh, sure. Um, I will, um, this is a great question, Rachel, and, um, and a, and a complex one, right? What kind of healing do we need, Right. Um, there's a need for a tremendous amount of healing and repair. Um, and there has not even been a moment really to stop and mourn. Um, all of our losses, our movement losses, our community losses, the mass losses of elders and others to this pandemic, which is ongoing, 
um, has been catastrophic, right? Particularly for for Black and Brown communities. Um, I mean, I won't recite the, the percentages and numbers here because it's just it's you know it's um and that needs to, there needs to be space for that, right? Um, I think I think on a national level, reconciliation requires a justice framework. We have not landed on. We have not landed on um, a new national justice framework for democracy in this country. And the current administration, the incoming administration, I should say, um, is not going to be a vehicle for that. And so uh, I just don't think that we are realistically coming into a moment um, of, of deep reconciliation. I do think that we need to bridge. And I think that the left always needs to build a bigger we. And we need to think very strategically and have a long game around whom can we reach and bring in to a united front project around democratic possibility. Um, and what kind of um, reconciliation may have to happen as part of that project? of building a bigger we, when this is not, we're not in a truth and reconciliation framework in this country. There's not been an acknowledgement, right, of, of you know, um, the, the white supremacy of the current project, never mind the founding project. So no, we're not in the, we're not in a healing moment. And I rest assured that the tens of millions of people whose um, white folks whose resentments have been effectively mobilized are not mostly looking for reconciliation in this moment. I wish it were a different moment, but we have to understand the moment that we're in. And so we do need to build movements and community spaces where healing and repair is an ongoing part of what we do. This is a long-term fight. This is at least in my view, a generational fight. You know, the burnout is real. Um, the need to sustain is, is high. And so we have to think about how we sustain ourselves and how um, uh, repair happens in that context. We do need to think very strategically about bridging. If you take me back to Reagan, as you did earlier, um, you know, the, the new right built a political project among populations uh, and leaderships that would not get in the same room with each other. You could not get that. You could not get the neoliberal elites that came out of that ran with Milton Friedman, right, in the same room with the Pat Robertsons and fundamentalists of the world who are being newly activated. They would not. If the right had to build an entirely separate infrastructure, different think tanks, different political operations, some of that has, has converged more these days. A lot of it still is separate because it came out of fundamentally different cultural bases. And they built, they built an alignment. And it was not an easy thing that they did. Uh, the left, I think, often think, well, they were all bigots, they shared bigotry, so it was easy to build an alignment. It was not easy to build that alignment. It took exceptional organizing to do. They had in the churches, they had to change the theology taught in the pews. You tell me that's an easy thing to do. The level of cultural work that needed to happen in order to build that political project was tremendous. We have to think in similarly bold ways about whom could we align with our project? Just as one example, this is not a proposal, just one example. I am really struck by the fact that a majority, or at least a near majority, probably a majority of religious people, I'm not saying spiritual, people who identify as religious in this country, they're pro-choice, they believe in reproductive freedom. You would have no idea that that was the case in this country based on who controls the narrative of religious morality in terms of who has the infrastructure to, to mobilize culturally, socially, and politically in this country. Why isn't there an independent infrastructure a robust infrastructure for religious progressives in this country. You know, you can't organize around whiteness in this country. It's a white supremacist country. You can't organize around religion in this country, even if you're a secular leftist, as I happen to be. We have to be clear-headed about where we are, who we need, and how we'll build a coalition um, that can't be defeated through some gerrymandering of the polls. 
into an escalation, this idea that if we just get 50% plus one, if we have enough, if we just mobilize all the folks of color and a few progressive white folks that we can hold, the rules change when you when all you can muster is 50% um, uh, plus one, and we see the rules changing in front of us. So we have to be bolder about the, the kind of block that we're building. This is a moment to think in those deeply expansive ways about what we need to build um, in order to bridge over the distinct possibility of authoritarianism and white supremacy uh, and theocracy in this country towards something emancipatory. We can do it, but only if we're really honest about what we need and if only we're really focused about making the kinds of investments of our energies and time and resources that that, that project will require. Thank you so much for that, Tarso. Um, you all should be asking Rachel these questions. She's got better answers than me. I'm sure of that. I am not sure of that. <laughs> um, but the uh, the way I think I would like to close is just to thank you for your expertise, but also to thank you for your commitment to helping the left understand this terrain. I was saying before we started that I'm always I'm with my head in the sand when it comes to, to the terrain in which Tarsus spends so much of his time thinking and, and agitating and advocating. And I'm grateful for you and everybody at Political Research Associates for the work that you do and for the things that you generate that help us be smarter about how we fight. And, you know, as the song goes, if the kids are united, they will never be divided, right? So let us think about the ways that we can build this united front that can actually do some of that moving beyond blocking and getting to the building, but thinking really critically about the things that you offered us, Tarso, in terms of what needs to be built and where we need to think about joining up forces to be able to increase our power. So I'm going to close us out there. And I want to remind everybody that we are about to take a 30-minute break, probably a little bit more. So we'll start again at 15 minutes after the hour with our final session that will focus on tools and skill building to build the left. Um, and you, just as a reminder, you need to go back and find the um, specific link for that session. You can't just hang out here or you won't get booted ahead. So make sure that you're going where you need to go to get the information you need to get and enjoy your break. Thank you again, Tarsu. My pleasure, thank you. Best thing about my job is the company I get to keep. Thank you for being that company this, this morning, afternoon, evening, whatever it is where you are. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.